today comes from Luke chapter 24. It begins in verse 13 on the road to Emmaus. It says, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is near the evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Those of you who have been coming for a while know um, we went through the Gospel of Mark, uh, the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, We went through the whole Gospel, uh, finished it, Uh, for Easter, and left it with the discovery by the women who visit uh, the tomb to dress Jesus' body. We left it with them astonished, astonished by the fact that Jesus had risen. And that's where Mark ends his gospel. This is a transitional sermon. We are going to move, starting next Sunday, to the Old Testament, where we're going to look at the beginning of God's redemptive plan that culminates in Jesus. So we're going to go right back to the very beginning in Genesis, the book of origins, the book of beginnings. But this sermon today, looking at Luke, this is a key text. This is, and has been for me, a key way of understanding how to read the Old Testament. And so I wanted to use this as a sort of jumping off point before we look at the Old Testament. As I say, we went through Mark, and the text that we have in front of us is from Luke, another of the Gospels. Luke's Gospel is very different from Mark. Mark was based on Peter's uh, experience of following Jesus and watching him, and Peter was a fisherman. He was an uneducated man, um, and his Gospel reflects that. It is very raw and simple. 
It is not uh, crafted. It is very direct, like a raw eyewitness account. Luke, in contrast, is and was a doctor. He was an educated man, and his gospel reflects that. The language and style are elegant and refined. This is educated classical Greek. And he doesn't approach it as an eyewitness. Luke was not one of Jesus' followers. Luke approached it as someone who was discovering the story of Jesus. And let me read you how Luke begins. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's talking about the disciples. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. A careful investigation and a careful account. Luke went and talked to many disciples to write his account, and he includes details that Mark does not. Probably one of the biggest differences between Luke and the other Gospels is that Luke, as a doctor, was used to talking to women. For most Jewish men of the time, talking to a strange woman was a taboo. And therefore, when you go to Luke, you get much more information about the women who followed Jesus. You get an account of uh, Jesus' birth from Mary. You get Elizabeth's account of the birth of John the Baptist. You get stories about Jesus as a child, his bar mitzvah, going to the temple and preaching. And one of the stories you get is this story, the road to Emmaus. Clearly Luke talked to these two disciples and got this story from them. And the reason I'm bringing it before you is I think this is the key story for understanding how to read the whole Bible and will be the basis of how I approach the Old Testament when we go through Abraham. So you should be at least aware of what I'm about. So let's have a look at it. Now that same day, this is the day of the resurrection. This is the day that, that the, uh, in the dawn the women go to the tomb. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. We remember from Mark that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the uh, disciples, the original 12, desert him. They scatter and run away. And even Peter, who follows the guards as they take uh, Jesus away, denies him. So the whole structure, the disciples that Jesus trained and taught who followed him throughout his ministry, completely break apart. They're trying to understand what happened. So you should think of them as this kind of shattered group at this point. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. I just want to 
look at this point because it's, uh, it's a strange theme in all the Gospels, the issue of recognition. What is keeping them from recognizing Jesus? And it's an issue because the Gospels are eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. The fact that there is doubt about his identity is a problem to be explained. You know, Jesus was a well-known figure even to those who didn't follow him. He was a notorious figure in Israel. And so doubt about his identity is a strange thing to include in the Gospels. Why would this be? I mean, here it is. It's in all the Gospels. Why would there be doubt about the resurrected Jesus? Well, I think there are two possibilities. The first is that this is the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus. Um, By the way, this uh, resurrection is in the future of every Christian. All Christians who put their faith in Christ will be resurrected and be reunited with him forever. So this isn't of just academic interest. This is our future. This is your future. What happens when you're resurrected? Well, Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church tells us. Someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. I actually think it's a good question, but Paul is not impressed. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put into the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. So our resurrected bodies will be in continuity with the bodies that we have that go to the grave, and every one of us will face it, unless Jesus returns quick. That body that is, goes to the grave has the re- same relationship to our final bodies as a seed or an acorn has to an oak tree. There will be an astonishing transformation and growth. So the first thing to think about is there is continuity between who we are now and what we will become. However, there will be transformation. Paul says this, The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. I remember when I first became a Christian and I read this. All week I had this image of me walking down the street and doing a, a sudden turn. And the, the new Tony would go this way. And the old would continue. And it would be all the aches and pains of my old body and my fillings and you know the scars and the gray hairs and all the parts of me that are unwholesome. And they would just flop onto the sidewalk in this gelatinous blob. And I would walk away free. I'm not sure it's exactly like that, but it's going to be pretty wonderful. 
By the way, it's also a promise. I know that uh, some of you have issues with your body. All of us face weakness in our bodies, face diseases in our bodies, face things about our bodies that are not working as they should. They will be gone. The resurrected body, sown in weakness, will be raised in strength. All the allergies, all the problems, all the aches and pains, all the weaknesses, all the struggles of our earthly bodies will be completely gone. It's an amazing promise. So one possibility is that the resurrected Jesus was somehow different because he just looked different. The wear and tear of his 30 years living uh, in Israel, living in the sun and the dust and the hard work and the poor diet, somehow that was removed and you had a perfected body of Christ. I don't really buy that one. Um, I think more is going on here. And you will see why when we get to the Lord's Supper part, when we get to breaking bread. The second possibility is that Jesus really has become something different. That he has been transformed by, from the person, the physical person that you relate to as you would to any other human being into some new kind of relationship. There's a beautiful moment in John's Gospel when he talks about Jesus' resurrection. He tells the story of Mary Magdalene who goes and finds the tomb empty and is desolate. She gave up everything to follow him and without him she has no idea what her life is about. The tomb is empty. She sees uh, a man she doesn't recognize in the garden just like the two disciples here on the road to Emmaus, by the way. He's right there, she doesn't recognize him, until he calls her name Mary. And then he throw, she throws herself at him, and Jesus says this, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. She only recognizes him when he calls her name, personally. It is still a personal relationship, but it is a changed relationship. What has changed? Well, notice he says, go instead to my brothers and tell him. Who are his brothers? They are the disciples. They are the foundation of the Christian church, the apostles who, through the Holy Spirit, begin the Christian church with Peter's first sermon. She's saying, don't hold on to me, this finite physical person right in front of you, because I'm going back to God. Where you will find me in future is the church, which becomes the body of Christ. Not just for a small group of people who can follow Jesus and touch him and, and uh, know him personally, but for everyone, a new relationship with Christ and God based on our participation in the Christian church. The cross has changed things. It is not so much his physical change, although, of course, he is resurrected, he is glorified. 
But the cross has changed his relationship with everybody. Christ is now available to everyone through the church. The body of Christ is now present in the world through the church. And faith and participation in that church, where the gospel is preached and the people gather as his body. Continuing with the story on the road to Emmaus, verse 17. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. We had hoped that he was the one, the Messiah. Their minds cannot grasp this new reality revealed by the resurrected Christ. They have difficulty connecting the Jesus of miracles and wonders, the one who is going to redeem Israel. They assumed, and most people in in, uh, Israel assumed, that this would be a physical redemption. He'd be some kind of leader or king who would throw off the oppression of the Romans. And instead, they saw him die a miserable death on the cross at Golgotha, the place of skulls. It's hard to put those two ideas together. Despite all they know, all they've seen, all that Jesus taught them and predicted, there's a gap there, a comprehension gap. It just is blowing their minds. They can't grasp it. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. They have been confronted by the central fact of Christianity. We celebrated this at Easter. He is risen. It is the fact of the empty tomb. Jesus didn't have some kind of spiritual transformation, spiritual resurrection. His body was no longer in the grave, in the tomb. It was transformed and resurrected and turned into new life. This is the fact that everyone and all of us have to deal with. It is the fact of the witness of the women, the witness of the other disciples, the witness of the of all the Gospels. What does it mean? How should we understand it? What does it mean for our belief? What do we believe about Jesus' life, about his death, about his resurrection? This is the center of faith. This is the center of what it means to be a Christian. And how does Jesus respond? I mean, here he is, the risen Lord. This is the first day he's risen. 
the fact that he does what he does here tells us that this was a key thing that had to be explained. Verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not some isolated factual events, not brute facts that just pop out of nowhere and confront and astonish his disciples and the world. There is a reason that we have an Old Testament and not just the New Testament. By the way, I hate those little Bibles that just have the New Testament and the Psalms. The Christian Bible is Old and New Testament together. There is a reason that God's plan of redemption included the creation of Israel and the long history of the Jewish people's relationship with God. There's a reason that God created a priesthood in Israel, a temple where worship, the provision of holy spaces, sacrifice, created a distinctive culture and relationship with God, a whole religious worldview and way of thinking. And the reason for all of that, all those centuries, was to make Jesus Christ intelligible, to prepare the way for him, to provide the contact in which his life, death, and resurrection would have meaning. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, what uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch, Penta five, the five books, what uh, Jewish people call the Torah. And it is the very beginning of God's relationship with Israel. Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis when we look at Abraham. Exodus, which tells the story of God bringing Israel out of slavery. Leviticus, which tells us the story of God choosing the tribe of Levi to be the priests and to have the tabernacle and the ark and the place of worship. Numbers, a difficult book, admittedly, but basically, in Numbers, you get the enumeration of the 12 tribes of Israel and who's in it. And Deuteronomy, this is where Moses gives the law for a second time after Mount Sinai, right before the people enter the Promised Land. Moses, the first five books, the prophets make up much of the rest of the Old Testament. They're the ones sent by God to challenge Israel when it strayed from the path, to keep their relationship on track, to remind them that they were God's chosen people and that they had become God's holy people, God's witness to the world. And not just Moses and the prophets. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. 
you'll sometimes come across churches, whole denominations, that focus on the New Testament. You know, that's where Jesus is. Why would we bother with the Old Testament? Some parts of it are difficult to read. It's, it's hard to understand. What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us right here. It has everything to do with Jesus. And that's why we should read it. It's why next week we're going to start a new sermon series in the, the Old Testament after spending so much time in the New Testament. And also, just personally, parts of the Old Testament are difficult to read. You know, that was thousands of years ago, millennia ago, at least three or four. That was the Bronze Age. People had different ideas, had different lives, had different values. But they worshipped the same God who was at work in their lives, and everything in it is about Jesus is about preparing us to understand who Jesus is and what he did. And therefore, it is the key. Every time you read the Old Testament, every story, every verse, every word points to Jesus. And my personal experience is, when you read something in the Old Testament that's hard, that doesn't make sense, that is confusing, that is the time you should pray. Right, just stop reading and ask God. You know, God is the wonderful counselor. God is the teacher. Ask God to reveal the gospel in that word, in that verse, in that story, in that chapter. And the question you should ask, and you should ask this explicitly, how does this point to Jesus? What truth does it reveal about Jesus? How does this help me get closer to him? And you can turn the Old Testament from some dry history, which some people think it is, into this wonderful living document that reveals things that are extraordinary. I hope that we can find some as we go through the life of Abraham. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So that's the direction we're going. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went on to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. You hear me say these words every week when we go to the Lord's table. These are the words that Jesus used when he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. These are the words that he used when he was with the disciples for the final time uh, the night before he was betrayed when they had together the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, because that's what this is. 
Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Just like Mary Magdalena, there's a switch here. She didn't recognize the person in front of her until he called her name, until she was called by him. And where did he send her? To the disciples, to the Christian church. And what do you find at the very center of the Christian church? The Lord's table. If you are having difficulty with your faith, if your relationship, your prayer life, your worship life, if you're confused, if, if life is, is just overwhelming you, you need to come to the table because there you will find him. There you will find Christ. There he will be fully recognized and revealed. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us and on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This one always strikes me. Um, when I look at my Christian life, you know, I became a Christian at 30, but when I think about my life, I always knew that God existed. I always felt safe in the world. Every time I looked at the stars or a sunset or a horizon or something extraordinary and beautiful, I just knew there was a beauty behind that beauty. I didn't know the name. I didn't have the words. But I just felt emotionally safe. My heart knew. But my head, conditioned by secular education, rebelled. Christians are stupid. Christians don't, Christianity doesn't make any sense. Until I went to Manhattan and I listened to Tim Keller, a very intellectual man who explains scripture and shows you how it makes sense, that it is rational, that it is coherent, that it is an integrated way of living in the world. And my heart, already knowing, was joined with my head, which said, at some point, fair enough. Okay, I give up. And I became a Christian. And it was at the Lord's Supper. Because at the Lord's Supper, you, know, you look at it and you think, what is it? Oh, it's bread and it's wine. And your head looks at it and it's, it's bread and it's wine. But your heart knows it's Christ. The bread is his body on the cross. I mean, <laughs> just, that's where he is. And if you want to meet him today, that's where you find him. Let's pray. Lord, we wander in the world bewildered, overwhelmed and tempted, led astray by many things. But Lord, you call us because you're faithful. You redeem us because you're our Savior. And you meet us and feed us when we need you. I pray, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who needs to know you, who wants to know you, who is still in doubt, that you would meet them at this table and that this would be the moment of recognition when they get to see you clearly. Lord, I pray that for all of us. Show us yourself, Lord. Draw us in and reveal who you are to us, each one of us. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we